0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Its debasements of Roman round arches, Greek columns, and Gothic bases. Its sculpture, which was so tender and so ideal. Its peculiar taste for arabesques and acanthus leaves. Its architectural paganism, contemporary with Luther. Paris was perhaps still more beautiful, although less harmonious to the eye and to the thought. But this splendid moment lasted only for a short time. The Renaissance was not impartial. It did not content itself with building. It wished to destroy. It is true that it required the room. Thus Gothic Paris was complete only for a moment. Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie had barely been completed when the demolition of the old Louvre was begun. After that, the great city became more disfigured every day. Gothic Paris, beneath which Roman Paris was effaced, was effaced in its turn. But can any one say what Paris has replaced it? There is the Paris of Catherine de Medici's at the Tuileries, the Paris of Henri the Second at the Hotel de Ville, two edifices still in fine taste. The Paris of Henri the Fourth at the Place Royale, facades of brick with stone corners and slated roofs tri-coloured houses. The Paris of Louis Thirteenth at the Val-de-Grâce, a crushed and squat architecture, with vaults like basket-handles, and something indescribably pot-bellied in the column, and thick-set in the dome. The Paris of Louis Fourteenth in the Invalidé, grand, rich, gilded, cold. The Paris of Louis XV, in Saint-Sulpice, volutes, knots of ribbon, Clouds, vermicelli, and chicory-leaves, all in stone. The Paris of Louis Sixteenth in the Pantheon, St. Peter of Rome, badly copied. The edifice is awkwardly heaped together, which has not amended its lines. The Paris of the Republic, in the School of Medicine, a poor Greek and Roman taste, which resembles the Colosseum or the Parthenon, as the constitution of the year three resembles the laws of Minos. It is called in architecture, the Mesidor taste. The Paris of Napoleon and the Place Vendôme. This one is sublime, a column of bronze made of cannons. The Paris of the Restoration, at the Bourse. A very white colonnade supporting a very smooth frieze. The whole is square, and cost twenty millions. To each of these characteristic monuments there is attached by a similarity of taste, fashion, and attitude a certain number of houses, scattered about in different quarters, and which the eyes of the connoisseur easily distinguishes and furnishes with a date. When one knows how to look, one finds the spirit of a century, and the physiognomy of a king even in the knocker on a door. The Paris of the present day has, then, no general physiognomy. It is a collection of specimens of many centuries, and the finest have disappeared. The capital grows only in houses—and what houses! At the rate at which Paris is now proceeding, it will renew itself every fifty years. Thus, the historical significance of its architecture is being effaced every day. Monuments are becoming rarer and rarer, and one seems to see them gradually engulfed by the flood of houses. Our fathers had a Paris of stone, our sons will have one of plaster. So far as the modern monuments of new Paris are concerned, we would gladly be excused from mentioning them. It is not that we do not admire them as they deserve. The St. Geneviève of Monsieur Soufflot is certainly the finest Savoy cake that has ever been made in stone. The palace of the Legion of Honour is also a very distinguished bit of pastry. The dome of the wheat-market is an English jockey-cap on a grand scale. The towers of saint Sulpice are two huge clarinets, and the form is as good as any other. The telegraph, contorted and grimacing, forms an admirable accident upon their roofs. Saint-Roche has a door which, for magnificence, is comparable only to that of Saint-Thomas d'Aquin. It has also a crucifixion in high relief in a cellar with a sun of gilded wood. These things are fairly marvellous. The lantern of the labyrinth of the Jardin des Plantes is also very ingenious. As for the palace of the Bourse, which is Greek as to its colonnade, Roman in the round arches of its doors and windows, of the Renaissance by virtue of its flattened vault, it is indubitably a very correct and very pure monument. The proof is that it is crowned with an attic, such as was never seen in Athens, a beautiful, straight line gracefully broken here and there by stovepipes. Let us add that, if it is according to rule that the architecture of a building should be adapted to its purpose, in such a manner that this purpose shall be immediately apparent from the mere aspect of the building, one cannot be too much amazed at a structure which might be indifferently. The palace of a king, a chamber of communes, a town hall, a college, a writing-school, an academy, a warehouse, A courthouse, a museum, a barracks, a sepulchre, a temple, or a theater. However, it is an exchange. An edifice ought to be, moreover, suitable to the climate. This one is evidently constructed expressly for our cold and rainy skies. It has a roof almost as flat as roofs in the east, which involves sweeping the roof in winter when it snows, and, of course, roofs are made to be swept as for its purpose, of which we just spoke, it fulfills it to a marvel. It is a bourse in France, as it would have been a temple in Greece. It is true that the architect was at a good deal of trouble to conceal the clock-face, which would have destroyed the purity of the fine lines of the façade, but on the other hand, we have that colonnade which circles round the edifice, and under which, on days of high religious ceremony, the theories of the stockbrokers and the courtiers of the commerce can be developed so majestically. These are very superb structures. Let us add a quantity of fine, amusing, and varied streets, like the Rue de Rivoli, and I do not despair of Paris presenting to the eye, when viewed from a balloon, that richness of line, that opulence of detail, that diversity of aspect, that grandiose something in the simple and unexpected in the beautiful which characterizes a checkerboard. However admirable as the Paris of to day may seem to you, reconstruct the Paris of the fifteenth century, call it up before you in thought, look at that sky athwart that surprising forest of spires, towers, and belfries spread out in the center of the city, tear away at the point of the islands, fold at the arches of the bridges, the Seine, with its broad green and yellow expanses, more variable than the skin of a serpent. Project clearly, against an azure horizon, the Gothic profile of this ancient Paris. Make its contour float in a winter's mist which clings to its numerous chimneys. Drown it in profound night and watch the odd play of lights and shadows in that somber labyrinth of edifices. Cast upon it a ray of light which shall vaguely outline it, and cause to emerge from the fog the great heads of the towers. Or take that black silhouette again, enliven with shadow the thousand acute angles of the spires and gables, and make it start out more toothed than a shark's jaw against a copper-coloured western sky, and then compare. And if you wish to receive of the ancient city an impression with which the modern one can no longer furnish you, climb, on the morning of some grand festival beneath the rising sun of Easter or of Pentecost, climb upon some elevated point, whence you command the entire capital, and be present at the awakening of the chimes. Behold, at a signal given from heaven, for it is the sun which gives it, all those churches quiver simultaneously." First come scattered strokes, running from one church to another, as when musicians give warning that they are about to begin. Then all at once, behold! For it seems at times as though the ear also possessed a sight of its own. Behold, rising from each bell-tower, something like a column of sound, a cloud of harmony. First the vibration of each bell mounts straight upwards pure, and, so to speak, isolated from the others, into the splendid morning sky. Then little by little, as they swell, they melt together, mingle, are lost in each other, and amalgamate in a magnificent concert. It is no longer anything but a mass of sonorous vibrations, incessantly sent forth from the numerous belfries—floats, undulates, bounds, whirls over the city prolongs far beyond the horizon the deafening circle of its oscillations. Nevertheless, this sea of harmony is not chaos. Great and profound as it is, it is not lost in its transparency. You behold the windings of each group of notes which escapes from the belfries. You can follow the dialogue, by turns grave and shrill, of the treble and the bass. You can see the octaves leap from one tower to another. You watch them spring forth, winged, light, and whistling from the silver bell, to fall, broken and limping from the bell of wood. You admire in their midst the rich gamut which incessantly ascends and reascends the seven bells of Saint Eustache. You see light and rapid notes running across it, executing three or four luminous zigzags, and vanishing like flashes of lightning. Yonder is the abbey of Saint-Martin, a shrill, cracked singer. Here the gruff and gloomy voice of the Bastille. At the other end the great tower of the Louvre, with its bass. The royal chime of the palace scatters on all sides, and without relaxation resplendent trills upon which fall, at regular intervals, the heavy strokes from the belfry of Notre-Dame, which makes them sparkle like the anvil under the hammer. At intervals you behold the passage of sounds of all forms which come from the triple peal of Saint-Germain-des-Pres. Then again, from time to time, this mass of sublime noises opens, and gives passage to the beats of the Ave Maria, which bursts forth and sparkles like an egrette of stars. Below, in the very depths of the concert, you confusedly distinguish the interior chanting of the churches which exhales through the vibrating pores of their vaulted roofs. Assuredly, this is an opera which it is worth the trouble of listening to. Ordinarily, the noise which escapes from Paris by day is the city speaking. By night, it is the city breathing. In this case, it is the city singing. Lend an ear, then, to this concert of bell-towers. Spread over all the murmur of half a million men the eternal plaint of the river, the infinite breathings of the wind, the grave and distant quartet of the four forests arranged upon the hills, on the horizon like immense stacks of organ-pipes. Extinguish, as in a half-shade, all that is too hoarse and too shrill about the centre chime, and say whether you know anything in the world more rich and joyful, more golden, more dazzling, than this tumult of bells and chimes than this furnace of music, than these ten thousand brazen voices chanting simultaneously in the flutes of stone, three hundred feet high, than this city which is no longer anything but an orchestra, than this symphony which produces the noise of a tempest. End of Book 3, Chapter 2